Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, policy, culture, economics, and business. Today's topic, There Will Be Blood, America's Antitrust Reform Movement. Our firm's recent Political Risk Brief explores the very important topic of the new and rising antitrust reform movement that promises to upend decades of policy on the key issue of corporate mergers and acquisitions. Our political risk brief frames this movement as fundamentally retrospective. That is an effort to exact vengeance, to right a series of wrongs. It is not only, or perhaps not even mainly, about future policy outcomes. Once again, I am joined for this podcast by my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, Chief Strategist for Barron Public Affairs. Great to be here again, Jonathan. And Jeremy Furchgott, Director. Great to be here. So the question that we want to start with is why should observers have this understanding of this rising generation of antitrust reformers? Johnny, as the person who leads our thinking on this topic, it'd be great for you to walk our audience through our understanding of how these reformers view the issue of antitrust. One of the best practices in our line of work is to understand a community of opinion, an ideological constituency on its own terms. And I think one of the key things to understand about today's antitrust reformers, the so-called hipster antitrust community and, and its allies, is that they think in historical terms. They historicize the problems that they have identified. They do not think in the typical social scientific terminology of experts in Washington. And I think that is one of the challenges that the antitrust bar in particular has confronted because the practice of antitrust has become over the last four plus decades, very technocratic, very focused on questions like market definition. And if you read, for example, the writings of a younger Lena Khan when she was part of Barry Lynn's initiative at the New America Foundation, you see that she developed her worldview based on a suite of historical analysis. And I think to understand how she, for example, will regulate as chair of the Federal Trade Commission, you have to understand that historical analysis. So, Johnny, you mentioned Lena Khan, a critical figure in the hipster antitrust movement. She has been one of the most outspoken and effective advocates for their effort to fundamentally change four or five decades of approach to antitrust. I want to take a step back even earlier than Lena Khan to a figure who might be credited with really beginning this entire movement uh, in the modern era, certainly, and that is a man named Barry Lynn. We had a fight for our freedom time and again for 200 years. But what was different about the neoliberals 40 years ago is when they came in, um, they actually changed for the first time. They changed the operating idea, the fundamental idea of America. Rather than using our laws to protect our liberty and our democracy, they said, hey, let's use these laws instead to promote efficiency. Rather than uh, thinking of ourselves as citizens, you should think of yourself as a consumer. Johnny, how should the audience understand Barry Lynn and the ideas that motivated him and how he was able to begin this really quite remarkable shift in a policy that is fundamental uh, to the U.S. economy and the U.S. business community. Barry Lynn's background is journalism. And based on that background, 
he developed an approach to questions of corporate behavior rooted not in some sort of broad systematic analysis, but I'd use the term close reading. I think one of the things he has bequeathed to the hipster antitrust movement and to his many acolytes, including Lena Khan, is a great enthusiasm for understanding the ins and outs, the intricacies of corporate behavior. So if you look at the House Judiciary Committee, Antitrust Subcommittee, Investigation of Competition in Digital Markets, of which Lena Khan was one of the principal authors under Chairman David Cicilline, you see just an incredible breadth of knowledge and wide-ranging analysis. That particular document, of course, is focused on the, the tech giants, but I think it's true of, of Lena Khan's body of work in general, uh, if, if I can extrapolate a little bit, that she's not focused on some macro economics inflected market summary as most of the antitrust expert community, I think, probably has been. She's, she's very focused on understanding how corporate behavior, whatever the corporation has got to this point. To my view, one of the great examples of this is the monograph that um, the Open Markets Initiative at New America published a decade ago on her dive into the, the history of alcohol regulation since prohibition, her recovery of regulatory ideas that were widely known and disseminated and had real influence, but over the course of decades were lost, is to my mind quite masterful. And I think that is one of the great accomplishments of the hipster antitrust movement led by Barry Lynn. Close reading of, of corporate behavior. There are many fascinating lessons and implications of this unfolding debate on antitrust. We're going to talk about some of them with respect to neoliberalism in a moment. I want to turn to you, Jeremy, and explore what we can learn from this debate about influence. And if we went back three, four years ago and said the name you know, Barry Lynn or Lena Khan or other such names to key figures in antitrust policy in Washington, in corporate America, they would have found it almost inconceivable that this group of folks could lead a revolution in antitrust policy. So how is it that folks such as these are able to really change the vector of one of the pillars of economic policy in America? We've noticed that these new antitrust leaders are getting cited by policymakers. And often they're cited far more than some of the long-term so-called legacy economic experts. I'll provide an example. Former FTC Commissioner Rohit Chopra, in a May 2021 letter, urged his FTC colleagues to pursue action targeting pharmacy benefit managers. And what was so remarkable about that letter was that there was only one footnote in Chopra's entire statement. And that footnote referenced a February pro-market article co-authored by Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and Zach Fried of the American Economic Liberties Project. And so that one small example, that one footnote, for me, really 
encapsulated so many other instances in which those being cited are new antitrust thought leaders. They are the ones who are being noticed by policymakers. And of course, those individuals are part of the same community that Barry Lynn and Lena Khan belong to. Yes. I think you've seized on the right word, Jonathan, which is community. As we've seen with many successful political constituencies and movements, where individuals in a group elevate each other, help raise each other up in terms of profile and influence, there's a multiplier effect that can't be quantified. And I think that the camaraderie, the cohesiveness of this community is one of the principal reasons for its acceleration in the last few years. I'm, I don't want to say that it was a dispositive factor in its success. I think the analysis and the specificity of the analysis along the lines I described earlier is probably the, the biggest factor in its rise. But I think the, the compressed timeline of its rise is in part due to the camaraderie and cohesiveness of the community. And Johnny, in thinking about this community, what animates them? What drives them? What is this community really about? What do they really want to accomplish at the, at the highest level? I think they'd like to reorient American political life along moral grounds rather than technocratic grounds. They see the elites of the Democratic Party, neoliberals, the you know, the individuals associated with the Clinton presidency and most of the Obama presidency as, as having aggrandized themselves under the delusion that they were advancing the public interest. And what motivates them, I think as much as criticizing Robert Bork's worldview on antitrust is not really right of center thought leaders or the Reagan legacy, but the subversion of the democratic vision by liberal elites who have presided over a period in which U.S. society has become less small d democratic. And Johnny, if you had to specify in the eyes of the hipster antitrust movement, the, the, the core sin of neoliberalism, how would you define that? What, what is neoliberalism's great transgression that so motivates this community to seek reform? They see the cardinal sin of the neoliberals as hypocrisy, which is to say they are advancing corporate interest or corporate interests, plural, under the intellectualized guise of human flourishing and well-being. And the discrepancy between their policy prescriptions and the deterioration and economic mobility in, in the U.S. really is problematic. And what's so fascinating is, of course, everyone focuses on, of course, Robert Bork, the antitrust paradox. And about 40 years ago, he fundamentally reorients antitrust policy to this technocratic approach of defining markets and then measuring you know, prices and selection and antitrust policy becomes really this technical exercise. But the hipster antitrust movement, these new rising reformers, they want to go back to a much, much earlier era. And so to your point, Johnny, the debate isn't really so much about Bork, although it's unavoidable to talk about Bork. It goes way before that, almost uh, more than 100 years uh, ago from when we're speaking. It 
and you see that in their collaborations with Senator Hawley from Missouri. They want to go back to Thurman Arnold and Louis Brandeis. They want to hearken back to those figures whom they see as these seminal theoreticians and practitioners of antitrust and, and democracy with a small d. Jeremy, as you look at various communities, some quite small, of would-be reformers, what do you think has allowed this particular community to be so effective in shaping the landscape? They've been so effective, I think, because they're a small core that's united and that's not differentiated by sector. In other areas of our firm's work, we encounter thought leaders who are experts on their particular sector of the economy. And uh, what's remarkable about antitrust is the same voices who are influential on, say, big tech policy are also moving the needle on healthcare policy or agriculture or other sectors of the economy. And that has, I think, enabled the community to retain a lot of its intellectual uh, vibrancy and, and avoid the silos and encumbering structures that have caused other communities of, of intellectuals to see their influence decline. I want to move from the left to the right. We've talked a lot about center-left reformers, and I do think the center-left deserves credit for catalyzing or perhaps even generating this shift uh, in opinion on antitrust. But if we turn to the right for a moment, I think one of the most important figures is the GOP congressman uh, from Colorado, Ken Buck, who has emerged as arguably the most important House Republican on antitrust reform. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see our antitrust laws enforced. I'd like to see our antitrust laws updated. I'd like to see uh, uh, five Googles and seven Facebooks and uh, nine Twitters. I'd like to see competition in the marketplace. These companies have uh, eradicated competition. We need to make sure that we level the playing field. I know, Johnny, you've done a close study of Congressman Buck and his role. What, what should our listeners understand about Congressman Buck and what makes him so remarkable? Meaning, I think it's safe to say that a Ken Buck would not have existed in the Republican Party even six or seven years ago, certainly 10 years ago. So where does Ken Buck come from ideologically, intellectually, and how has this moment really allowed uh, his rise as being an advocate of much more rigorous antitrust enforcement and reform? What's striking about Congressman Buck is the extent to which he has been open to greater and greater antitrust scrutiny of corporations. If you look at his statements at the beginning of the investigation of competition in digital markets, he was not as enthusiastic as he is today. The equivalent of Ken Buck 10 years ago would have been much more wedded to the nostrums of traditional GOP economic orthodoxy. There are a few things that, that have changed. First, the treatment of social conservatives, especially evangelicals by the tech platforms, which is very important in a state like Colorado where the evangelical community in Colorado Springs, which admittedly is not his district, has an outsized influence on the Republican Party and the ethos of the Republican Party. I think that is one factor accounting for his perspective on big tech. I think 
there has been boiling resentment well before any of the public controversies related to the treatment of social conservatives, evangelical organizations by the tech platforms, starting with the Amazon Smile charitable platform. That's been building for five years. It's only gotten press coverage in the last year or two. But I think there has now been a tipping point where representatives of the Republican base are willing to take action because they see that as an injustice. A, a second potential influence on Congressman Buck is the fact that he represents a rural district. And I think throughout American history, there has been skepticism in rural areas for concentrations of wealth and power on the coasts. And I think it's become very clear over the last five years that since the financial crisis, the wealth and arguably the power in this country has really concentrated ever more, especially in Silicon Valley. So I think those two factors, which are arguably both sociological or demographic, help explain the emergence of Ken Buck. The, the Republican Party is not the party largely of the Chamber of Commerce businessmen wearing the tab collar shirt, which it was much more of 30 and 40 years ago. And we've discussed that a lot on this podcast in the last 18 months or so. Congressman Buck reflects that to some degree. I, I don't think he's an ideologue in the way that other Republican congressmen are, but he's not wedded to a, a kind of archaic ideology in the way that others might be. Jeremy, there's an interesting correlation between the movement of Republicans, especially rural Republicans on the antitrust issue and their movement on the healthcare issue. And as someone who spends a lot of your time thinking about healthcare and healthcare policy, how do you think these two issues might be interacting? Or if they're not interacting, what is the similar movement of Republicans, especially rural Republicans, away from the traditional orthodox Republican view to something new and different? Tell us about the emerging political coalitions. I think there are two things that are going on and that are intersecting in some way that remains to be determined. The two, the two elements are as follows. The first thing that's going on is that many Republicans have become alienated from large corporations. The second is within the healthcare industry, there is a competition among different types of companies to avoid being cast as monopolists. And so what we're seeing in healthcare is different types of advocacy being conducted by different types of companies to try to portray other industry participants as worthy of antitrust scrutiny. It remains to be seen ultimately where Republicans are going to fall on this. On this. The question remains unresolved uh, and remains highly dynamic. Uh, for example, recently, We've seen new types of healthcare companies seeking to influence the Federal Trade Commission rulemakings on healthcare topics. So month to month, we're seeing new participants in the antitrust conversation on the healthcare front. And that's really a microcosm of what's happening across the economy. I want to address two themes, Jonathan. The first is when Robert Bork 
was writing and published The Antitrust Paradox, the great question in American political life was inflation. And we were living in a period after the Arab oil embargo and the, and the oil crisis and prices for consumer goods were going up, up and away. And inflation was tamed by Paul Volcker. There was a tax reform revolution and few decades of prosperity and lower prices, thanks to more you know, trade with China, resulted. And I think what happened is that animating impulse behind the Bork view got lost or uh, decayed. And at the same time, folks on the left concerned with upward mobility and folks on the right concerned with social capital saw things like the opioid epidemic, the crash in the fertility rate. And they said to themselves, how can it be that more deregulation and lower taxes and less antitrust enforcement is actually good for human flourishing? If anything, what we're seeing is less human flourishing in our society. I think the Angus Deaton and case paper five years ago or so was a seminal moment where people woke up and said, whoa, the neoliberal supply side consensus on economic policy is not actually potentially advancing human flourishing. We have to rethink what we're doing. If And what's so interesting is if you look at people on the left, and if you also look at people on the right, like f former President Trump, there is this esteem for the 1950s as a great period of broad-based middle-class prosperity in this country when anybody with a high school degree who was willing to work hard could get a job at a company like General Motors and provide for their family and not fall into the two-income trap where both parents you know, were working and they could provide for not just one or two children, but three or four children. And I think that both folks on the left and on the right began to ask themselves, wait a second, if the 1950s were not that bad, and in some cases better than today, they were also a time of more regulation of business. And maybe some of the deterioration we're seeing in American life today would be arrested or reversed or ameliorated were we to go back to what we saw in the 1950s. And that's why I think you see, for example, Senator Rubio coming out with his famous op-ed about the importance of unions to civic life. That, so that's the first theme. The second theme, and I think this was foreshadowed by what, what I just said, is that American political life since the financial crisis has almost been like a beach ball. The beach ball was pushed under the water, and we're not sure exactly where the force it's, it's uh, developed is going to take it. I think antitrust is one of the policy areas where that animating force, that energy has landed on. And we can get into the reasons why that is. Johnny, you mentioned Senator Rubio, and I'd like to focus for a minute on Senate Republicans. I think Senate Democrats have a fairly conventional view for Democrats on antitrust in this era. And I think it's pretty much what folks expect. I think it's a different story among Senate Republicans. Beginning with Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who historically has been a representative, a voice 
for the conventional free market Borkian Milton Friedman perspective. He's a prince of the conservative legal movement by genealogy and biography. And so he is struggling to reconcile that perspective with this new era that we've entered, which is much less hospitable to the view of Robert Bork and Milton Friedman and conventional free market ideology. So how, how, how have you observed Lee's navigation of these questions and what does he tell us about the broader environment? I think we see conflict. We see him on the one hand, we see him excoriate the Biden administration's nomination of Lena Khan to the FTC. And we see him excoriate the Biden administration's elevation of Lena Khan to the chairmanship of the FTC. But on the other hand, he's been very tough on, on big tech. And in last week's nomination hearing featuring assistant attorney general for antitrust nominee, Jonathan Cantor, he was more accommodating and found a way to parse a previous statement by Cantor in such a way as to uphold greater scrutiny of tech companies, large companies in the economy, and at the same time, defend the consumer welfare standard on theoretical grounds. We began the conversation regarding Senate Republicans. We mentioned Rubio, and then we turned to Lee. The driver, however, of the debate among Senate Republicans and maybe on the right overall, I think it's safe to say is Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who has been the most aggressive, the most outspoken on this revolution in right of center antitrust thinking. Now, we've seen this before in American history. I mean, this is not unfamiliar to us. A century ago, massive corporations, the railroads, U.S. Steel, attempted to amass economic power and succeeded. They attempted to amass political power and for a time succeeded. And we know what the solution to that is. The solution is you break them up. The solution is trust busting. And that's exactly what needs to occur today. Johnny, what does Hawley teach us in terms of the reception on the right to this new heterodox view? And with respect to Hawley specifically, where does it come from? It's not contrived. It's genuine. If you look at his Stanford thesis, which was published by Yale University Press, if I'm not mistaken, on Theodore Roosevelt, he, going back almost 20 years, has subscribed to the view that American politics, what, and this is akin to the hipster antitrust community in Barry Lynn, needs to prioritize a moral trajectory, uh, that politics is not just about efficiency. Politics is about uh, morality. And the caricature of Senator Hawley as being a political maneuverer, I think, is inconsistent with his track record on the Teddy Roosevelt legacy. I think one thing that unites Senator Hawley with the hipster antitrust community is that he really believes in this. And that's why so much of the rest of the Republican conference it has tacked in this direction. In the same way that if you look at Senator Klobuchar, who's the chair, who's Senator Lee's counterpart, the chair of the antitrust subcommittee on the Senate Judiciary Committee, she's moved in a more progressive direction consistent with hipster antitrust. A year ago, 18 months ago, if you, if you followed her statements very closely, she never said 
let's break up big tech. But once the hipster antitrust community began to say more clearly, and Senator Elizabeth Warren as well, it's time to break up big tech, Senator Klobuchar began to, she crossed that Rubicon and began to say the same thing. I think that uh, divestiture of assets and breaking off of certain assets that shouldn't have been acquired in the first place, I think that's a real remedy that has to be on the table. It is often observed that antitrust law precedent is now become deeply entrenched and therefore the prospects for some sort of meaningful change that would constrain corporate mergers and acquisitions is unlikely. The business community has been, been surprised before. I expect it will be surprised again. But how do you assess, Johnny and Jeremy, this question of enhanced enforcement versus the need for statutory changes? And from what we're seeing today, how far will this reform movement get? Is it rhetoric or is it our sense, is it your sense that it will actually manifest itself in real meaningful policy changes that will affect the ability of companies to be acquired uh, or to acquire? The key frustration for many antitrust reformers is that the status quo has basically been codified in case law, in precedence, based on the decision-making of judges, many of whom have taken part in seminars developed by the law and economics movement to emphasize the consumer welfare standard, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they are driving towards statutory change to compel the judiciary in a sense to change tra trajectories and really be accountable to the legislative view of antitrust, which has undergone or is undergoing this transformation. There will be statutory change. That's my prediction. It will obviously take time to filter th through to case law, but it it will occur. And that has all sorts of implications for, for companies large and small, because even if something is not enforced yet, if it's on the books, it presents a whole suite of risks. And there's an additional risk, which is that companies that are not even pursuing mergers or acquisitions will fall under antitrust scrutiny as policymakers seek to apply antitrust to solve other problems or problems that previously were considered outside of the realm of antitrust. And so one comment that we sometimes hear from companies in various sectors is that in the near term, they're not concerned about antitrust because they have no mergers planned. And our response has often been, e even if the company's strategy is not a strategy of mergers or acquisitions right now, that doesn't make the company immune to antitrust scrutiny, especially as so much of the driving force of antitrust scrutiny is, is about companies' previous activities. I want to address, Jonathan, the rift within the conservative world that we got to a little bit in reference to Senator Lee. Recently, there have been two really interesting statements from conservative antitrust reformers. One was a medium post by Mike Davis, who is the head of the Internet Accountability Project, which is an anti-Google organization 
um, ostensibly funded by some of Google's adversary companies. And he argues that antitrust as practiced today represents an arbitrary subversion of originalist principles, basically. You know, an originalist, truly conservative legal movement view of antitrust would be an upholding of the Roosevelt anti-trust legacy. And the law and economics movement has actually subverted that. So it's interesting how he he uses the originalist argument to kind of hoist the antitrust status quo on its own petard. That would be number one. Number two would be Senator Hawley's counsel, if I have his name correctly, John Errett. He published a essay in American Affairs, the National Conservative Trumpian Journal, whatever, however you want to describe it. And he called into question the success of the conservative legal movement as his boss did in a, in a different context, given its antitrusts, conservative antitrusts, empowerment of large corporations hostile to conservatism and to the well-being of conservatives. I think those are two of the most notable articulations of the conservative reformist perspective. And we have not yet seen as interesting, I think, replies from the conservative defenders of the status quo and the consumer welfare standard. So I'd encourage our listeners to read those if they really want to understand the intra-conservative debate on antitrust. Jeremy, as someone who closely tracks influencers, influencer citations of authorities, academic, political, and others. And as we are about to embark on a major analysis and study of super influencers on antitrust, what are your initial impressions of the patterns of citations tell you about the velocity of the debate and who's winning and who's losing? You made a couple, you gave a couple examples earlier, just pulling back, you know, even, even more broadly beyond healthcare, what do you sense? It's highly asymmetric. You have a relatively small or clearly defined community of antitrust experts who are motivated, who are vocal, who are prolific in many cases, and they are advocating for new approaches to antitrust. The reason why I say it's highly asymmetric is because on the other side, you have a highly disaggregated array of voices that are seeking to defend the status quo. I think that those defending the status quo are much less vocal. They appear to have less confidence. There's less material out there or it's much less concentrated. And so as we try to analyze the influence landscape, we have to deal with this asymmetry. We have I expect that we're going to see clear influencers on one side and on the other side, meaning the uh, advocates of the status quo, I expect that it's going to be much harder to tell who is truly driving that debate because there's probably much less willingness to be open about their positions. And Johnny, as CEOs, general counsels, others in the C-suite, especially government relations heads in Washington, work to traverse this roiling sea of change on antitrust, what do you think they most need to understand that might be different than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago? Bringing a 
member of the antitrust bar into a meeting with a hipster antitrust staffer is not going to be persuasive. Having a technical argument about market definition, which is intended to exempt you from antitrust scrutiny is not going to work. If, you the, have, if the antitrust lawyer is wearing a pork pie hat, does that <laughs> does that help or is that, you think, insufficient? I'm more of a fedora <laughs> man. I don't... <laughs> You're too short for a fedora, but anyway, go on. So I, I think credibility always matters, but it especially matters in moments of sectarian conflict. And antitrust right now is one of those moments resembling the Roman amphitheater scene in Monty Python's The Life of Brian. One of the big controversies that we saw over the last 18 months was when it was revealed that Fiona Scott Morton, who's been active in the antitrust reform conversation, was a a consultant to both Amazon and Apple and had not disclosed that in all of the publications she'd written for institutions like the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and the Thurman Arnold Project she runs at at the Yale School of Management. And leaders in the hipster antitrust community like Matt Stoll or like Zephyr Teachout called her out. I think that is a window into one of the dimensions of what they see as wrong with neoliberalism, which is to say that in their view, elite neoliberals carry water for companies, but contort themselves into intellectual knots to send the message that their perspectives are in the public interest. And that is why the hipster antitrust community has been so focused on the revolving door vis-a-vis government officials. That is why the hipster antitrust community was mobilized against the first individual who apparently was considered for the position that Jonathan Cantor was just nominated to because she had been a outside counsel. She had been outside counsel to big tech companies. And they see this kind of revolving door dynamic where people who've held high regulatory positions then work for big tech companies or antitrust violators as problematic, but it's not just the revolving door turn, it's the it's the justification of the big company's position on these in very intellectualized grounds that I think most irks the hipster antitrust community. If if in their view the neoliberals were more honest and said, yes, I'm a paid advocate for the insert company name position and I'm presenting the best argument on behalf of the company, they wouldn't find it so noxious. What they resent is the ascribing moral objectives to a commercial relationship. Johnny, that reminds me also of some of the activity that we've been tracking involving the FTC where small businesses have been testifying without disclosing their affiliations with much larger companies. And so there's a similar dynamic where the voices in the arena are portrayed as being the voices for the small the small business or the individual consumer, where in fact there are these t- ties to much larger organizations that remain undisclosed. In some ways, the consumer welfare standard is a victim of its own success. 
I imagine most people listening to this podcast don't fully remember the era you described, Johnny, of, of rampant inflation and high prices. If you do remember it, you probably weren't paying the bill uh, when those, you know, those high inflation rates and those high prices were really constraining the, the American economy. And the policy set, you could argue what that set was, but the policy set of the past four decades has produced for American consumers more goods at lower prices than ever has existed in human history. Johnny, the way in which the hipster antitrust movement dismisses the low prices and wide selection uh, that have been achieved by the, the current neoliberal policy set, is that a vulnerability or has the debate even moved beyond the average consumer, the average voter, the average uh, influencer caring because people just take those low prices and large selection for granted? I think they take them for granted. And in so many quarters in our society, the it thing in the consumption world is experiential consumption. We've sort of passed peak tangible consumption and moved toward a world of restaurant going and travel and experience as the many people, especially in the upper strata, have become more affluent. So I, prices have nowhere to fall, basically. We have as cheap stuff as we possibly can have, and we've maxed out in terms of people's appreciation of, of uh, price decreases. One of the key perspectives that undergirding the hipster antitrust perspective is this idea that people are first and foremost citizens before their consumer. So if you look, Jeremy mentioned Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance previously, if you look at her organization's monographs, they're interested in understanding people as citizens who have voices in their community. And I think one of the maybe deficiencies that hipster antitrust is a correction for was the description by so many people in Washington of Americans as consumers or thinking of them as consumers. At the end of the day, consumption is only a part of people's lives. Their work is a major part of their lives, their creativity, their community, their religious affiliations. And I think, in my view, there was an overemphasis on consumption. And I think when progressives and national conservatives saw all of the social capital indices that we've discussed declining, the suicide rate going up, more, you know, mortality increasing, fertility going down, affordability of homes decreasing, et cetera, et cetera, they ask themselves, is consumption the be all and end all? And I think this is arguably an overcorrection to an overcorrection. There's a dialectical dynamic at play. Jeremy, as we may be moving into a period of higher inflation, maybe a prolonged period of higher inflation, the, the record of our work suggests that if that becomes a real problem, we'll begin to see that in the reference citation patterns among uh, you know, decision makers, opinion leaders, and first order influencers. What, what will you be looking for in this slightly higher, maybe much higher inflationary period with respect to this debate? Well, I, I think there are real risks there, not just in terms of uh, interest rate driven inflation, but also potential trade disruption that could be that could be more severe than what we already have. You know, I'm thinking of one of the scholars who we identified th uh, through influencer analytics 
who's an academic. And if I recall correctly, he drives a used Honda Civic. And his view is that people don't really need fancy vehicles. His used Honda Civic is just fine. Now, the problem with his view is that uh, most Americans don't share his view. Most Americans have an appetite for vehicles that are as new as possible and vehicles that are as large as possible. And so what remains to to be seen is uh, what will happen if we have an extended period of high prices? Will people continue to dismiss consumerism as somehow unnecessary or overemphasized or or if if, uh, it becomes a more practical day-to-day issues for a lot of families, um, then then it could be that some of the focus on the consumer welfare standard will will reemerge. And so I think what I would look for in the influence landscape would be more citations of scholars who are tracking consumer prices, scholars who are tracking the, the price on the shelf of major retailers who are looking at food expenditures by family. I think if those kinds of scholars start getting more attention by policymakers, I think that would be a good indicator of where things are headed. One possibly important factor to think about is that when we had the last period of high prices and inflation, let's say the the late 70s and the early 80s, Washington, D.C. was a much less wealthy place than it is today. And so my guess will be that the community, the economy that is the greater Washington, D.C. area will be less sensitive to higher prices. And therefore, the reaction here might be behind the rest of the country. Politicians will pick up on it through their constituents and through their various activity around the country. But I think the permanent governing class here in Washington will not be nearly as attuned to high prices as it was, you know, 35, 40, 45 years ago. And you don't even have to go back several decades. If you just go back to the financial crisis 12, 13 years ago, uh, real estate prices in DC remained flat or even increased a little bit. And so, I mean, there, there's a serious risk of misalignment between other parts of the country and, and, and D.C. One thing that's interesting is the, the weighting of academics in the hipster antitrust community broadly defined. I think if you look at the people who were the thought leaders uh, in the Democratic Party on antitrust in the Clinton era and the Obama era, many of them were technocrats who inhabited this officialdom class in Washington. And if you look at the hipster antitrust community, I think they are naturally suspicious of many of those people, as I've discussed, and believe that academics are more trustworthy. And that's why you see someone like Tim Wu, who's a professor at Columbia Law School, come down and become the antitrust guy on the National Economic Council. So I think we've seen, uh, to Jeremy's point about the uh, economists we identified in our analysis that Bloomberg Businessweek wrote up back in 2020, there's a a turn toward academics in the hipster antitrust community unless the economic consulting firm experts that the antitrust establishment in DC has favored. The second thing I would say, the conservative movement's approach to lawfare, I think 
has changed radically in the last 25 years. So 25 years ago, the thought that conservatives would deploy the techniques and strategies of trial lawyers was an impossibility. But I think if you look at the attorneys general in red states today and their their lawsuits against the big tech companies, you see an openness to lawfare in a way that you did not 25 years ago. And I think that that is one of the major inputs and, and arguably one of the biggest X factors in, in the antitrust reemergence. Conservatives are willing to embrace robust litigation in a way that they weren't before. I think, you know, one of the the spurs toward the Borkian view of antitrust was this sense that people had that the federal government was just getting bogged down in antitrust litigation. I think most famously, the litigation against IBM, it was going on forever. It wasn't getting anywhere. That was kind of the conservative view of trial lawyers and the practice of law in general. And I think that as conservatives have processed the left's use of the legal apparatus leading up to the tobacco master settlement agreement, it's taken conservatives 20 years. They've said, hmm, there's something there for us. If we want to be as successful as the left in prosecuting our agenda, we need to be engaged in this kind of lawfare. Jeremy, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, our China expert, about the crackdown in China on big corporations, the surge in antitrust activity in the PRC. What's your take and analysis on those events? Well, I think it makes it really difficult for some of the large tech companies in the US that have been trying to make the following argument. The argument that if US companies are broken up or otherwise weakened, it will only help the large Chinese companies that are growing. And I think the challenge to that argument now is that Beijing is cracking down on its own large tech companies. And so I think this is a, a challenge for U.S. companies, especially since these uh, big tech companies in the United States have been so averse to publicly defining themselves as American champions. Well, as we close, I'll just note briefly that the neoliberal policy era really, I think, has been defined by three dominant positions. There are others, but I think there are three that really have dominated the policy set. And those really are immigration, antitrust, and trade. And on two of those three, antitrust and trade, there now is a very, very vigorous left-right coalition that is contesting the neoliberal conventions. And I think that will ultimately have enormous implications and a very significant impact on corporate America in ways that have not been the case for a very, very long time. So it's been an important discussion today, an excellent discussion. Thank you, Johnny, and thank you, Jeremy, for your contributions. Thanks a lot, Jonathan and Jeremy. This was great. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Jonathan. I want to thank Diana Engelman, who makes these podcasts possible at our firm. I want to thank our research and production team, Danielle, Robert, and Phil, for their excellent work in helping us prepare and execute this conversation. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you'll join us on a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. Mm -hmm.